Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. And on today's show, one of Pace Magazine's most anticipated mystery and thriller books of 2023, Lexi Elliott's Bright and Deadly Things, dropping this month, right in time for Valentine's Day. After all, what says I love you better than a psychological thriller? Please welcome Lexi Elliott. But you feel good? I feel good. You look lovely. Oh, thank you. I can see you've got it. Now, is that a cup of coffee there for you? Now, this is actually tea. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. I'm a chain tea drinker. Well, I'll tell you what, since we're on the topic, I have been a hardcore coffee drinker my whole life. Black, as strong as I can get it. My (laughs) wife, because of some allergies or something, had to back off of coffee. So she started drinking tea. And Lexi, she didn't just drink any kind of tea. She had every kind of tea imaginable to mankind, right? So she's uh, tea clubs, fancy tea, unfancy tea, (laughs) black tea, green tea. And I kept saying one day, I'm like, you know what? Yeah, fine, whatever. So one day I tried this really fancy micro encapsulated freeze dried organic expensive expensive (laughs) tea and i thought oh my gosh this is really good and then i found out the price and i'm like you know what i'm okay i'll stick with coffee i'm gonna make this very short so then she (laughs) went to um and they just came in yesterday um uh something tips it's a british tips that's it that's what i drink builder's tea pg tips and this is exquisite (laughs) Now, what's funny is that I never drank cream or sugar in my coffee, but for some reason, I've been, we've been watching the queen and all this different stuff. And I'm like, yeah, what if I put cream and, and then I tried it? I'm like, oh my God, this is so good. Now I get it. Yeah. I've been drinking it. I've been drinking it. Like I'm, I'm hardcore now. I'm two weeks in and I'm just like, but you can just, you know, you can finish a cup and go straight for another one and you won't be jittery the way you are with the coffee. So it's what I do. At least, I reckon, 14 cups a day. <laughs> wow. Okay. And you know what? Here's another thing. Since I want to stand this because this is really fascinating to me. When you go to a restaurant and you have a cup of coffee and you pour a cup of coffee and they come back and warm it up, if you doctor it at all, it's never quite the same. Whereas tea is always tea. Yeah. And the other change. thing with tea that I do that I'm sure lots of people don't, if I have accidentally let the cup go cold, I will warm it up in the microwave. And I wouldn't do that with coffee. You can't do it with coffee. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it cooks it or something. It doesn't taste as yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> This tea moment is sponsored by PG Tips. <laughs> Definitely should be. <laughs> well, Lexi Elliott, it is so lovely to see you. Thank you for joining us on the Thriller Zone. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Megan Beatty for uh, hooking us up because she's been working it. So, yeah, yeah, she's um, wonderful. A she good is find. So lovely. Um, you, your book. Okay, we're going to be talking about this, and we've. I'm usually I make notes, and I I'm one of those people that my mother would turn over in her grip. Are you marking in that book? 
<laughs> you folding corners? <laughs> yes, mom, it's homework. Okay, that's part of the deal. But this Bright and Deadly Things is a lovely read, lovely and horrific all at the same time. <laughs> and it drops this month to lush reviews. In fact, Lexi, I was uh, stalking, uh, re, uh, watching, following <laughs> Hank Philippi Ryan, and she was heaping some glowing praise on you, girlfriend. Oh, thank you. And, and yeah, that was lovely of her as well. Um, yeah, very touched, very pleased. She's a hell of a writer too, I might add. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> quite someone to say nice things about you, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so when you find a pro like her, everybody knows Hank, If you when you find a pro like her and she goes on and on about it and then she 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 uh, tweets it and Instagrams it, you, you know you're, you're, well, I've got to check this girl out. <laughs> lady woman friend um so anyway uh i i enjoy the book she enjoyed the book our listeners are going to rip through it so we're going to dive into it but i want to start if you don't mind i want to start a little bit back step because i like to get to know whom i'm talking to because uh, you have quite a fascinating background I find it very interesting. And you, you know, we've heard this our whole writing life that you write what you know. And it's so cool to meet a, an author who literally writes what she knows. And what I mean by that is, and I'm not talking about How to Kill Your Best Friend, which was one of your early books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let, let's just be clear. I don't write everything that I know. <laughs> Some of it is, you know, artistic license and imagination. <laughs> so between us girls, you haven't actually killed your best friend, have you? She's still alive. And uh, in fact, she's in the dedications for that book. So uh, yeah, um, there is a reassurance in that dedication that I've never considered killing her. <laughs> Good. So one of your, um, when you, it, this is, I could not help but ask you this. And I, if you've answered it a hundred times, please bear with me because I'm the first time uh, your audience. But you studied physics at Oxford and eventually earned a doctorate and theoretical physics. Now, either one of the, both of those things are amazing and they both figure into your book. And I guess I want to start, if you don't mind, for my audience and me, because I'm just, uh, I'm one of those guys, I'm reading constantly, fiction, nonfiction, I'm just always wanting to learn. And so what is, for those of us who don't know exactly what theoretical physics is, can you, can you give me an idea in a layman's terms what that is? Sure. I mean, put simply, it's physics where you aren't doing experiments. It tends to be more mathematical. It might require quite a bit of computing work as well. But it's you're not in a lab doing experiments. And I discovered whilst I was doing my undergraduate physics degree that I hated the lab with a passion that it brought on a stonking headache within about 20 minutes of being inside it. And I just gravitated more towards the mathematical end of physics that didn't require you to be in the lab at all. <laughs> That's interesting. So you, so you literally got a headache? Oh, I, I think it must've been a tension headache from just absolutely hating being there. I had yeah. a wonderful lab partner who would drag me out halfway through the day and we'd go and have a, a lovely lunch and then, go back and do it again and finish it off. And honestly, I wouldn't have survived without John, but I, I got through what I had to do um, to get my degree in terms of labs. And you could 
you could take theoretical courses um, in lieu of the labs. So I took as many theoretical courses as I could to avoid the labs. And that set me down that path towards theoretical physics rather than experimental. Oh, okay. Fascinating. Uh, I share something with you in that when I was in school, if you, if you engaged me in a discourse, like we had a just bounce back and forth off the top of my head, I could do that all day long, talk all day long, pull it out of my cap. But if you sat me down to a piece of paper and I had to scribble in that little ABCD and you had to darken a little circle, (laughs) you know, and you had multiple choice. Something happened to me. I got, I turned into a, a a a tense tension ball. I got a headache. I would sweat. It was the fact of like, oh my god, it's only four choices. What if I make it wrong? I think that one's this, and especially when they'd go, is it A, B, C, or is D could be A and B but not C? You know that one of those, and you're just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That just kids. There's no reason to go to school. yeah that kind of definitive uh nature of one of these is going to be right and the rest is all wrong and yeah you whereas when you're talking you feel like you can you can muddle through a little more right (laughs) right which is why when i uh defended my in my masters uh they said well you're gonna have to sit before a board and you know explain everything i'm like got it (laughs) no problemo um, because what, what's that old saying? Um, if you can't wow them with science, bury them in bullshit or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so let's talk about this. Your protagonist, Dr. Emily Rivers is suffering the loss of her husband and is attending a retreat much like you did. And this is an, another thing about writing what you know during your academic years, right? So you take it from there. How, how, uh, share how your life helped uh, set up and set the stage for Dr. Rivers and how those parallel universes, because that was came about because that was about what, two, two decades ago, roughly? Yeah, a little more. It was the year 2000. I got invited to go to Chalet des Anglais, which is um, in the French Alps. And it's owned by three um, Oxford colleges in a trust. And each of them takes a reading party every summer. And it's, it's an quite a unique thing you know it's invitation only it's a mix of people who are at different stages of their academic career from undergrad through to you know very senior professors um 10 or 15 or so and you spend a week there and you do a lot of walking and you're supposed to be doing something academic doing some reading as well I mean I think at the time my reading was probably light my walking was was good and my drinking was uh quite good really because there was nice red wine so I had a I had a lovely time and you know clearly nobody died um but uh it, it's such a unique setting you know no running water no electricity everybody kind of mucking in all together despite the different I hesitate to say social strata but there's definitely different levels within within academia um and it stuck in my head and when I thought about writing a uh, Oxford-based kind of campus thriller. I, I sort of wanted to do something a little different, a little more fresh. And I also liked the idea that if I could get them off campus, then and put them somewhere where it was hard to escape. Um, it becomes more into that closed environment thriller, which I really like because you can ratchet up the tension and make it very claustrophobic, very atmospheric. 
um, quite easily with that. So, so that's where it all came from. You uh, took the word right out of my mouth, uh, claustrophobic. That's the way that you kind of feel when you're in this. And uh, my wife suffers from that in elevators, does not like elevators or closed spaces where, you know, you don't, you, you don't know if you can get out quickly. And that was a nice element that uh, one of those atmospheric elements that really helps paint the picture. Did, have, did you suffer any of that? I'm just curious as backstory. Did you, did you feel like that, that particular trait of being forced in an enclosed space or uh, not freely moving about with strangers was real key to this I, I didn't yeah I mean I didn't either at the chalet or otherwise but my my eldest son um until maybe eight or nine definitely did not like an elevator and would climb 10 flights of stairs and force me to climb 10 flights of stairs to avoid them. <laughs> and he's, he's grown out of that. Um, I wonder if it still niggles at the back of his brain and he's just, he just gets past it now. I'm not sure, but you know, there were definite instances where you could see that it was, it was primal for him. Um, you couldn't reason him out of it. It was, it was absolutely a primal fear for him. I read somewhere, and it, maybe it was with Hank's article about how you choose names, and I love that. I, I'm I'm a big fanatic of really good names. I feel like the name that you bring to a character, first of all, it has to has a re, have a reason. You're not just going to go, "Hey, let's call him Bob Smith," right? But there, there's <laughs> yeah. got to be something really specific about it. And those names, if, do you do this? Like once you pick that name. Uh, first of all, do you spend a lot of time in that arena? And then do you go, yeah, this is it. And it's not changing. And here's why. Yeah, exactly. I do spend a lot of time getting it right. And you sort of have that, oh, got it. When it, when it comes together, yes, that is the right name. And you can, you can get close sometimes and just be going, no, 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 it's not, it's not quite there. And then you get it and you're like, yes, this is right. And it, and it wouldn't change for me. Um, I've had a name change on a minor character before when um, when I realized that it just, to say it, it didn't look um, so similar, but um, to, to read it, it looked very similar to another name. Um, just, you know, the way the letters sat together. And I don't know about you, but um, I'm certainly guilty on occasion of getting to the end of a novel that I'm reading and not actually being able to say out loud the names of some of the characters because... I've just followed the shape of them through the book. <laughs> so I have occasionally, uh, well, certainly one instance I can think I've changed a minor character's name, but a major character's name wouldn't change. Awesome. You know, with those, um, going back to your similarities and writing, you know, writing what you know and, and, and borrowing your life as you instill it in the page. I love this. Uh, again, uh, folks, by the way, uh, Lexi is quite the athlete. And if you wonder about that, um, I do wonder if your next thriller may be about someone who swims the English Channel because, folks, <laughs> she has swam, swum. She did swim the English Channel. <laughs> and so I was curious. I don't know that I've ever sat down and watched that event before. So I did a little bit of Googling and I found out that it's 21 miles, give or take. It's about 62 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, 
And what is it? Is it Shakespeare's Cliff in England? It starts and it goes through Strait of Dover and it ends in a place called, let me see if I get this right. Hold on. Uh, France. Uh, K- Cap Green Green A. Well done. <laughs> all right. So all of that notwithstanding, you know, some of my listeners are going to go, who wants to do that? Why do that? Well, if you're an athlete like you are, because you've been swimming since school, what is that like? I'm going to pull it back to the story, but I want to find out what that is like. What is What does it take to get to that point? Let's start there. Okay. So English Channel specifically, um, when I was at Oxford, uh, they started up a race against Cambridge across the English Channel. It goes every two years. Um, there are six people in each team, three guys, three girls, and you basically alternate until you hit France, each person swimming for an hour. And I was part of the team in the year 2000. 2000 was a busy year for me. Think about it. Oh, I went God. to Charlie des Anglais as well. Anyway, um, I was part of the team in the year 2000. Um, and I remember at the time just saying, well, that was a great experience, um, but I'm never going to do it solo because it's just too far and too cold. Um, but then later on, I remember meeting someone who wasn't uh, a swimmer with a similar pedigree to myself, maybe you know a little bit slower, but had crossed the English Channel and had just you know doggedly got on with it and done it, and that really struck me. I was like, huh, actually, maybe maybe I could, and then. Um, I think when I had my eldest child, I was looking for a challenge to feel a little bit more like me Um, because, you know, I think it was Nigella Lawson who said, once you have a child, you stop being the picture and you become the frame. And that's fine. You know, I don't mind being the frame at all, but sometimes I want to feel like me in the frame. Um, So I, I thought that that would be a good challenge to put myself down for somewhat naively. Um, So I I did um, do a crossing the year after Cameron was born, um, which had all sorts of challenges with, you know, handling a, a baby and all the training and so on and so, so forth. But I think it, it become, I mean, nobody would swim the channel because, oh, let's do this for fun, right? I mean, sure, it's sure. a really long way. It's really cold. The training is actually, and this is coming from someone who really likes endurance training, the training is really boring. You know, you get in the harbor at Dover, for example, and swim for six hours, and you come in every hour or so, and someone gives you a hot cup of something really dull, and then you go and get going again, and you count down to the next time someone's going to give you a hot cup of something. And it's really dull. And that kind of training, I mean, you wouldn't do it if you didn't have to. And so there must be some element of psychological compulsion. Um, I think I've ticked the box. Don't need to do it again. (laughs) All right. So now I live in Encinita, San Diego area. So while, yes, it's quite lovely. Uh, The difference then uh, of the West Coast beaches than East Coast is the water here is very cold almost year round, except the dead of summer. Um, the beaches are a little bit more rock than sand. And there are things called sharks, which you don't, <laughs> don't have to deal with every day. They're not always there, but they do like to come out around feeding time, which is early morning, which oddly enough is when surfers like to surf. And yeah. then around cocktail hour, which is where surfers like to surf. So 
I guess I thought to myself, does she, what would, what would be her biggest, what would be your biggest fear? Was it be, would it be exhaustion? Would it be sharks? Then I found out there are not a whole lot of sharks in that uh, part of the water. Not that part, no. Jellyfish, which is another big thing. I mean, there's certainly lots of jellyfish and I, I got stung a lot in training. I got stung while I was crossing the channel, but, um, the jellyfish in that area are really quite, I mean, they'll they'll leave a mark maybe and you'll feel like something has electrocuted you while whilst it's stinging you but it passes really quickly whereas there's some in the mediterranean which are brutal and you really come up in welts and be quite disturbed by but the ones in the channel are are sort of fine um i think really the the thing i was afraid of was the thing that happens to a lot of people which is you get within maybe a mile of France and that's the point at which you fail. It, it's called the graveyard of champions because the, the shape of the seabed and the currents and everything make it actually very difficult to get through that last mile and by which point you're you know completely exhausted anyway. And I, I think the statistic is something like um, 50% don't get across and most of them are, are failing in that last section. So I was really worried that I was going to put in all this effort and then, you know, fall at what feels like the final hurdle. Um, thankfully, I got across. So, but I did end up in hostel afterwards, but that's a completely different story. It wasn't serious, I hope. Uh, well, I had pulmonary edema um, from getting water in my lungs from the, the swimming. Um, but, it, you know, I was only in for a night. Pulmonary edema. Um, so um, swelling on your lungs, water on oh. your lungs. But I, I went into a hostel and, you know, they they put me on an oxygen mask and they shoved antibiotics into me and saline solution and, you know, all these sort of things that they do to rehydrate you. And, you know, it was probably the best recovery from sewing the channel that anyone's ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, just the fact that you can say you did it, check the box. <laughs> That's... I don't, I, you know, I, I got to believe it, reading your background, all the swimming and running and marathons and triathlons. I mean, I'm a former long distance runner, not triathlons, but I know what it takes. And when you were talking about that last mile, <clears throat> I remember those days when you're at, you know, that it's 26, two. Yeah. And you know that at that about point two. Yeah, point two, whoever came <laughs> up with that. Really, by then you're like, but somewhere around 20, I want to remember when it usually really hurts bad. The 21. wall, 2021. 20, yeah. 20, yeah. You that wall, you think, oh, geez, no, that, no, 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 I have five to go, six to go. And you have to just figure out, okay, I've got to reach down deep where it didn't exist yesterday and pull it out. Otherwise, I'm going to, I'm going to quit. Gonna, yeah. I'm going to quit. No. Now, if yeah. you snap something, pull something, that's a little bit different. But uh, so kudos to you. Bravo. Bravo. Thank you very much. And there was some swimming in um, How to Kill Your Best Friends. So, you know, an element of open water swimming in that novel. Um, I suppose I do draw on my own <laughs> experiences. Okay. So I was caught. I have not read that book. I'm sorry I haven't read all your books. Uh, look, I'm, I'm very, very touched that you've read Bright and Deadly Things. Speaking of which, I like the contradiction of bright and deadly. So you usually think dark and deadly. And, uh, and I know you're a fanatic for choosing names, titles, and, and, and characters' names. So 
can you do you remember where this came up with it was it one of those epiphanies when you went boom there it is and it just never changes that one did um it was my working title um and and it stuck uh so how to kill your best friend was the first time I got my working title and it and it stuck for the novel but I remember when I came up with that which I pretty much came up with before the novel I thought mm. I don't think anyone's going to take that one off me. They're going to they're going to stick with that. <laughs> and bright and deadly things. I just I really I like leaving space for the reader in general. It's something I like. I don't want to spoon feed too much. I I like ambiguity. And the the thing with bright and deadly things is, you know, bright how are we talking intellectually? Are we talking socially? Bright how and 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 what are these things that are apparently deadly as well? I, it, it's nicely ambiguous. Yeah, one of my favorite things in the world is double entendres. <laughs> Love that when you say one thing, oh you, and then you go, wait, that that could also be this. Yeah. Love that. I knew reading about you that anybody who can go through uh, the background that you had and then you suffered, uh, you got booted uh, after the global financial crisis, anybody who can work in um, uh, investment banking and then swim the English channel and run these marathons has a built in in tenacity that your average bear doesn't have. So I knew that, okay, here's someone who is going to approach thriller writing, writing in general fiction, and go, okay, so what's the worst that can happen? They say, no, I'll go again, right? I mean, is that pretty safe to assume? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I I started writing a novel um, right after I got um, uh, sacked during the global financial crisis when, you know, so many people in that industry did. Uh and I, I had a bit of time in my hands and two young kids, and I thought, right, let's actually give this a crack. And I'd, I'd made, I'd had a bit of success with short stories, and it gave me the confidence to give it a go. Um, and I got to the point where I just thought, you know what? I believe that if I dig in and keep going for long enough, it's going to come to something. And maybe I'm wrong, but I'm getting enough out of the process that it's worth doing anyway. And I still feel that way now. If Even if I didn't have a publishing contract, even if nobody was going to read my work, I would still write. So it's important enough to me that I would do it anyway. Well, that tells me even more about you because, <laughs> you know, you hear people, uh, who did I have on recently? Uh, Brad Taylor said, if he had known, I'm not going to quote this exactly, but if he had known that the writing business was as tough as it was, he got a really magnificent break right out of the gate, shot right to New York Times bestseller. But if he said, if he had known it was going to be that hard, he would have stayed at Fort Bragg. He would have just said, no, I'll just write it as a hobby, maybe every once in a while. So when I hear you say that, that tells me, a, a, again, more about you in that you are doing it for the passion. And that's where I think that writers who set out when they see these six and seven figure deals popping up and they think, Oh yeah, I want to do that. I'm mean, all I've got to do is write a book. Yeah. I'm like, it's first of all, it's not that easy. Secondly, it's highly competitive. And third, you better love it front to back. You're in the wrong biz, right? Yeah, and you better be producing something that you're happy with. Um, my my agent once said, 
look, life is too short to write books you don't want to write. And I firmly believe that. And, uh, you know, if somebody said, well, if you could just write according to this A, B, C, D, E, then you will automatically be, you know, times number one bestseller every time. That isn't why I write, you know, yeah. <laughs> that I don't think I could do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, all right. I'm going to go back to one of my abso-favo moments of the book. And you're you're wondering, David, wh- where's the yellow tab, right? You're thinking, where's that yellow I tab? I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. Well, guess what? It starts at the very beginning. Here's the opening line, folks. Chapter one. Are you paying attention? Listen closely. There's someone in the house. Okay. If you don't, you got me right there. You got me right there. Now I'm like, okay, I'm in for the ride. What do you got? And then you start describing the room and, you know, part of the conversations in the head and outside the head. And uh, I won't say whether anyone was or not, but you'll have to just read the book. But tell me about, like, again, we're going to circle back to picking that character's name, sticking with it, picking that title, sticking with it, picking that opening line and how essential it is. How did that come about? For me, I'm usually pretty firm on my opening scene, right down to opening sentence. Um, And I'm fairly firm on my ending scene. And it's the in-between, which is a bit more fuzzy and might wind its way and meander a little. Um, So that was absolutely what I envisaged for 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 Emily you know who's clearly not in a great space you know her her husband has died and she's trying desperately to figure out how to actually get herself out of the kind of rut she's been in she's been unable to get out of this abyss of grief and she's she's looking to to do that um and we start from there where she's she's forced to deal with somebody in the house and that to me was okay let's just throw it at her straight away there's something she's going to have to deal with straight away in the novel well in talking about opening with a fear that i mean i'm a guy I'm I'm a, I'm not afraid to say that if I came upon my house and I thought someone's in it, it would freak me the hell out. And so when you start with that visceral fear that everyone has and that fight or flight intensity is raging through your body, uh, we all feel that instantly. And it's like it unleashes your imagination like a like a tiger in a cage. And you know that if the writer can can grab you there and then hold you through that first chapter and then create that suspense that that thing that just keeps you going you're you're along for the ride and bright and deadly things does that i just might want to add right <laughs> thank you very much that's very kind I do want to say, as we kind of start our way toward wrapping up, what do you do these days because look. I want to know what you do to stay in shape. Writing, everyone thinks, oh, writing, you sit down in a chair and you just either type or you scribble. I mean, it's not that tough, but um, I have learned through the years, thanks to chiropractic and otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. 
that if you're not working out to keep your shoulders back and stretching and cardio and doing a little bit of this, exercises for your wrist and so forth, I mean, at the absolute bare minimum that you're going to end up hunched over and, you know, looking like a droopy old man. So what do you still keep all the same kind of activity uh, on a daily basis? Yeah, absolutely. I've I've always been um, really, really into exercise. Uh, I, I guess I've made myself addicted to it in some sense. And at the moment, I am training for the London Marathon, which is in April. So I'm running about um, thirty miles a week. I swim uh, three times a week. I, I lift weights twice a week. So I'm I'm doing a lot at the moment because of the London Marathon going into the mix. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really important to me to do all of that. And um, and I prefer to do it first thing in the morning, actually. Um, and I feel like a, a better human being when I've ticked that box. Um, and sometimes I'll then go and run again in the evening or something as a kind of delineation between, okay, my work is done and now we're moving into the evening. Um, but we're a family that, that does a lot of sport. And my husband, certainly, there are times where I'm like, um do you want to maybe go for a run and then we'll have that conversation? Because <laughs> he can definitely be a bear with a sore head without, without some exercise. <laughs> you know, it makes me think of two pieces of advice I've heard through the years, and they're both cliches, but they're, they're 100% work. One is resting is rusting. I just heard that one not that long ago, but my favorite is a body in motion stays in motion. I have another one, which is motion is lotion. Nice. Cartilage. <laughs> body, uh, joint fluids and so forth. Yeah. I think it's absolutely key. I think not only are you, are you talking about longevity and I'm working on a nonfiction book that has to do with longevity and I've got several decades on you, uh, believe it or not. Uh, and I realize how much harder each year. Matter of fact, my birthday is, uh, Oh, Wednesday. Um, Oh, happy birthday when it comes. Thank you, Davi. Um, but I realized that the, every single year gets just a little bit tougher. And it's not tougher like, oh, my God. It's just, oh, that doesn't bounce back quite like it used to. Or, yeah. oh, I've got to little work a little bit harder to get that stretch without hurting. And uh, I'm just a big proponent of it. And I, I'm, if that it's too much down a rabbit hole, uh, forgive me, but I think it's important. No, I agree. And I think you're right. As you get older, the recovery isn't quite the same. Um, like the last marathon I did was 2019 and I'm definitely feeling a bit more like my body is taking longer to get used to the miles than I thought it would, but you know, that's okay. So I'm not going to run a PB. That's fine. I just want to run the marathon again. (laughs) Exactly. PB personal best, by the way, exactly. um, my favorite thing. And again, my wife turns me on to tea and my wife (laughs) turns me on to yoga. And when I went to my very Lexi, the first yoga class I went to, I was the biggest dork ever. Oh my God. I'm doing these poses and I'm like, first of all, what the hell is this called? Where did you come up with that name? How do I do <laughs> me to get my knee over there? Cutting the story short, within just a matter of weeks, the ability to just stretch muscles slightly past your what you think is your ordinary capacity and hold it for a few seconds the what it does and releases endorphins in your body and just the mobility and circulation so that your brain 
is energized to write more words is fascinating. Yeah, I for me the cardio works best for that kind of um, getting the words flowing because I feel like it sort of scrubs your brain clean and yeah. gets rid of stuff and then gives space for other ideas to come in yeah. and especially if you're running outside and then you've got the the impact of nature and everything. I, I can't get beha- behind yoga. I just, I've tried and it just, it just isn't working for me. I'm afraid. Right. I'm, I'm going to throw this out and then we're going to bounce because we're, we got things to do. I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to say this, and this is, this is funny because my wife's got me uh, dialed in for one this Saturday. I say, honey, get me the slowest, lowest, easiest form of yoga there is don't don't expect the uh, for when the gallop front yells downward dog or yama suitsi fatsi watsi whatever the hell it is don't expect me to sit there and go oh yeah i know exactly what that pose is no just get me down and stretch because the just the stretching and and mobility is the key so i'm gonna throw that out at you <laughs> find the lowest slowest and give it a shot okay all right. I'll take that on board. There you go. As we wrap up, I always like to ask Lexi, I like to ask all my authors, what's their best piece of advice? Now, it can be, it's specific to writing advice. It, it can be a, a favorite piece of advice that maybe you heard from someone, you picked up, you held on to it for a while, you've adapted for yourself, or you go, no, this is it. What I've learned in my four or five books now, and from the very beginning, this would be that thing. So I already mentioned that um, piece of advice that my agent said, which is, you know, life's too short to write books you don't want to write. Um, And that is absolutely what I cling on to. But then also, I think what I've learned through this process, because, you know, you come to it and you've written a book and then suddenly um, you you have a contract. Well, not suddenly. It takes an awfully long time. (laughs) Um, And you know nothing, if you're like me, about the publishing process and and you learn and so it's all been a learning process to me but I have a real appreciation now for the second draft I suppose I used to think that all your creativity was in the first draft and then it was a little dry after that but I think the second draft is where you can really nail it and really you know think really hard about how you want to draw out the themes and where you know you know you have one sentence you need to put in to change the emphasis and what that sentence needs to be and exactly where it needs to go there's a real creativity in that as well so the second draft is like my thing now now let me ask you this so i I love that I, i i could not agree more it's in the crafting sentences and finding oh that sentence is pretty good but i think i can do better let me go take a walk or a run and come back because i think i can take it one step better People often, I think, my personal opinion is, it's it's a little bit like painting a watercolor or a painting. You know, you have to really get that some time and maturity and evolution to get there. But I, I think, so my question is, is it your second draft that you're like, okay, now it's there. And then at that second, do you hand it off to uh, beta readers or secondary readers or your husband or your agent or whomever? Or then, or do you go? Okay, the second now is really locked in, but I'm going to go one and then ha- one more and then hand it off. Okay, for a start, my husband is a lawyer and reads for a living, so there's no chance he's reading my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he reads them when they come out, um, but you know, not on an ongoing basis. And in fact, I I use my agent Marcy as like my my first reader. 
Um, so it's my agent and my publishing editor, really. It doesn't go to anyone else. But I would I would deliver a very clean first draft and then I would take the feedback. And sometimes the feedback is, you know, people often feel compelled to give you feedback with a solution. But actually, the, even just the mention of a specific area is telling you there's a there's a problem there. You know, doesn't the, the solution that they suggest may not suit me at all. Um, but I, I take on board that there is something to be addressed there and, and can look at it. Um, and that second draft, I would say, ends up being very, very, very close to what ultimately gets published. Have you met folks who have gone two and three and four and five and six and A, and second part of that question, B, do you often ask them why so many or is it merely, and here's why I'm getting at that. A lot of people go, they're afraid to let it go there. You know, what if I, uh, I'll just do one more edit on it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I wonder if that's a bit like painters who, you know, they don't know when to stop. And in fact, put down your brush, you're going to start spoiling it. You know? right. But uh, I have met people who are like that. And I just think their process maybe works differently, that um, maybe their first draft isn't quite as clean as as mine. I, I don't I don't know about that. But I've also heard about writers who who say, oh, I, I never I never do a second draft. I think Aaron Dutty Roy is is famous for saying that. And on God of Small Things, that's an amazing book. Um I'm I might quibble on our second book that I've forgotten the name of and say, eh, you could have done a second draft. Um yeah. you know, so I, I, I don't know. Um you you hear this from certain people and when you hear it sometimes you think, um I'm not sure I believe it. And sometimes you think, yeah, I do believe it and you should go back. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, I think most of us are in kind of two to three drafts, don't you think? Where do you stand? I am. uh, I am the second. I'm either the second or the third, and I'm I'm closer to the third because here's what I do: is I bang out one, and I just I write as fast as I can, and I try not to think overthink it too much. Now, on each day, I'll go the back the day. The next day, I'll go back the day before, see what I read, and then kind of gives me the momentum, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's done, and then I make a fresh new. Uh, oh, well, that didn't work, and that time timeline didn't fit, and well, that that hook didn't really hook me. And that tee up didn't get delivered till way too late. But by the third one, uh, it is the charm. And I feel like, okay, now this is it. This is as close as I can get it. And then it's a, a handoff. And I didn't do the handoffs on my early ones at all. I'm like, first of all, I don't want your opinion. I don't need your opinion. And I don't mean that egotistically. It's like, you're going to come at it from a place of like one of two places. Oh, I'm the expert on this, or I've got to give David something, right? Or, yeah. uh, I didn't really like it, but so, okay, Jesus, my friend. So I got to think of something I like, <laughs> right? You know, it's this overcompensation of some form yeah. or fashion. I like the fact that you only handed off to two people. I kind of dig yeah. that. Well, I, I, and I'm the same as you that I, I worry that if I got given work from a friend, that I would really struggle on how to how to give feedback, whether it was great or bad or whatever. And so I, I suppose I don't want to put somebody else in that position. Um, and, you know, we're all busy, right? Who has time to be a beta reader for someone else? 
No, exactly. And, you know, uh, to ask my wife, who's very close to me and knows how I tick, if I hand it to her, you know, she's going to go, I know that she's got a little bit of this. I don't want to hurt his feeling because this right here really sucks. (laughs) But now with, we've been together long enough. She goes, this right here, she's learned this phrase. um, It doesn't really take the story forward. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, where did you get that little Miss Writing 101? <laughs> but it's true. You go back and you read it. Oh, that doesn't really push it forward. Oh, I don't oh, really need it. It doesn't service the plot. <laughs> doesn't service the plot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, anyway, listen, I have a feeling I could talk to you all day long. We're in a time crunch. This has been so lovely. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful, and I'm happy to talk anytime. And folks, I want to remind you real quick, learn more, LexiElliott.com, the book, once again, Bright and Deadly Things. It's uh, it's one of those must-reads. And look, I could sit here and read off all the accolades on the back. There's plenty of them. A lot of people, just like me, dig it. So <clears throat> add it to your list. Lexi, once again, thank you so much. Thank you. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.